You're listening to the Leadership Jam Session Podcast, the place where you'll get to hear leaders at all levels of management share their practical solutions to the management challenge you face every day. So let's give it a jam. I'm your host, Rob Fonte. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Leadership Jam Session. Today's episode will consist of a panel discussion with three highly accomplished leaders. And the topic you're going to hear us discuss today has to do with hiring top talent, the good, the bad, and yes, the ugly. As many of you are aware, hiring is one of the hardest things a manager has to do. So I hand-selected three leaders who I know have great track records in building high-performing teams. And some of that success is based on their ability to not only hire top talent, but to hire the right talent. So take a listen, as I'm sure you'll walk away with some helpful tips that you can apply the next time you hire someone. So let's take a moment to introduce our panel of leaders. Our first leader is Paul Johnston, who is a regional sales director with 12 years of management experience and almost 30 years of healthcare industry experience. Paul, welcome to the Jam Session. Thanks, Rob. Hey, congratulations on your new podcast. This is awesome. Thank you. Appreciate it. Our next guest is John Fisher, who is a regional business director with eight years of management experience and over 20 years of healthcare industry experience. John, welcome to the podcast. Hey, thanks, Rob. Thanks for inviting me here. I'm looking forward to this. And I'll just let you know that if you hear me called Fish, I go by also. Great, Fish. Welcome to the show. Yeah. And so these guys have all worked together at one point at the same company. So you might hear some nicknames getting thrown out there. So Paul Johnston also goes by PJ as well. Our final guest is Glenn Whitwer, who's a regional area director with four years of management experience and over 30 years of healthcare industry experience as well. And I've had the pleasure of working with Glenn soon after he became a manager, and it was very apparent that Glenn already came into the role with some natural leadership abilities. I'm excited to have you on the jam session as well, Glenn. Welcome. Hey, Rob. Thanks for having me. I guess I'm the newbie manager of the group. Thanks for uh, the invitation and looking forward to be part of this panel. And as far as we know, you don't have any nicknames. It's just Glenn, or at least any nicknames that you want to publicly none, make aware. Right. <laughs> none that are podcast appropriate. All right. There we go. All right. So you guys ready to jam? Let's do it. You bet, Rob. You got it. All right. So let's jump into this. Perhaps you guys can share a best practice or one successful interview technique. That's worked well for you. Fish, why don't we start with you? Yeah, Rob, I'm not quite sure if it's a technique, but it certainly is how I think about the interview process as I go into it. And through the live interaction, so the face-to-face interview, how I think about that process is what I'm trying to accomplish while I'm there. And a lot of it is not so much about what you've been able to accomplish, but for me, I'm trying to come away with who you are as a person as an, and as an employee. And so I do have a lot of questions about your accomplishments as a candidate, but also I think what's most important for me is the team fit and who you are. I even like it when people put their hobbies on their resume, which then gives me an opportunity to really talk about the, the who they are more than the what they are. So maybe that might be a technique. I was going to say, Fish, I love what you're saying about seeing hobbies on the, on the resume because you can kind of see how enthusiastic and how many details that they provide around their hobbies. If they're doing the same thing with their successes at work and the things they're doing on their job, if they show that same enthusiasm, you know that they're into it. But if they're talking about their hobbies in a way that's so enthusiastic and then stuff at work that is not quite full of detail or interest, so there's a disconnect there. It's a good point. Yeah, that is a great point. Paul, how about you? What's a technique or a best practice that you can share with our listeners? Well, I take a rather conventional approach to uh, the interview process with a phone screen. And then if they pass the phone screen, they get the face-to-face. But just uh, to give you an idea of what the phone screen looks like for me is what I'm looking for is, are they available? Are they interested? 
and are they qualified? And I'll literally set up the call like that with the candidate on the call. And it can take 20 minutes to get through this. Availability is just, you know, here's our timeline. Are you able to, to meet that timeline? Are they interested? You're just asking three questions like why are you leave in that role, why are you coming to my company, and why this role? And then uh, are they qualified? I mean, you're just trying to figure out what experience they're going to bring to this, to my role. And are they running from their last job? Are they running to this job? And by that time, 20 minutes is up and you've got a sense of whether or not they can articulate their interest in this job. And so that's the approach you use, at least with the phone screen, and try to determine that to see if they move forward to a live interview with you. Right, exactly. In a live interview, I'm a believer in things that interviewees hate, which is the behavioral style of interviewing, which is the questions that begin with, tell me about a time when. I'm actually a, a believer in that because it forces them to actually tell me a story about their actual experience and what they actually did, not some hyperbole or some indefinite thing like what they would do or what they might do or in this situation or that situation, they actually tell me a story. Yeah, I agree because it's really the specifics that matter, right? Yeah, it is. All right, Glenn, how about you? Picking up on PJ's approach, I think it's really good to be able to set a tone and environment where you can get into the real detail and understand the why. And so my approach is one, I really try to make the interviewee feel real comfortable and relaxed. I'm not a big believer in the pressure cooker type interview. I think when you take that approach, you tend to get kind of interview type responses. And I want to be able to really peel back the layers and try to really understand what motivates people and really get into the why we're here and, again, just understand what truly motivates them. The other reason why I do it is when you think about the interview process, I mean, it's really a two-way optic, especially if you've got somebody who you decide that you really like through the interview process. You want them leaving that interview having some sort of understanding of what you're like, what you're going to be like to work with. I want them to be able to kind of envision what it's going to be like being managed by me, what it's going to be like being in meetings with me. And so I think you can accomplish that best by just creating a really comfortable and relaxed atmosphere. Yeah. You know, that's an interesting thought. I mean, I know there's managers out there that take the opposite approach. They take joy in trying to intimidate or make the candidate very uncomfortable. You know, I'm not sure that's the best approach, but I do know that there are two schools of thought out there. Fish, what do you think? Yeah, Rob, I was going to say, I think right in point with Glenn, part of this process is it's a two-way interview. And the person that you're interviewing has to feel comfortable with who you are as well. So right out of the gate, what I try to do is I try to make sure they realize who I am, what the company's all about. I even, um, sometimes I've brought in peers, their potential peers, so that they can sort of visit with that person and I could even walk out of the room for 10 or 15 minutes while they have a conversation because I really want that particular person that's the candidate to feel good about the company they're joining. And to top it off, we're representatives of the company. And I'd hate for our candidate to walk away from an interview thinking that if that's who the company hires, I don't want to be a part of that company. And then the rumor would spread that that hiring manager was a bit of a jerk in the interview process. That's not the company you want to go to. And that's not the image I want to portray in an interview. So two good points there. The first is, so just to clarify, so you use your employees, some of your employees who would be potentially peers of the candidate in the interview process, right? That's right. 
And so I, I do want to dig into that a little bit more, particularly with Paul and Glenn. But I think the second thing you said, I think it's critically important to make our listeners aware of that you do create a reputation out there among potential candidates. And if you're looking to hire top talent, taking that other approach of making the interview process very uncomfortable and difficult, well, you may not attract the best candidates out there. So I think that's a great point. Paul, I'm curious, do you use your some of your employees in the interview process? I absolutely do. We're in the process of hiring right now. And I've with every interview face-to-face, I've had a, one of my salespeople with me. And the reason is they're looking at that person. They're listening with different ears than I'm listening with. I'm listening with, uh, I've got to lead this person. I've got to coach this person. The sales rep with me is actually thinking about how is this person going to sell? How is this person going to interact with me in getting a project done? So uh, having that approach, having the uh, salesperson with me to hear that is hugely valuable. Another perspective. That's great. Glenn, how about you? Yeah, I agree. I do the same thing. And I think PJ's point and Fish's point is a real good one to bring somebody in from your team. You think about interviewing somebody and everybody's potentially looking at that person from a different perspective. I'm looking at that person from a leadership slash managerial perspective. And it's just interesting to get the thoughts from somebody who's looking at that person as a potential peer. I also think the team dynamic is so important to me. There's got to be a good (laughs) team, and it's an opportunity for the candidate and somebody else on your team to discuss things. And I love Fish's idea, and that's that's something I'm going to steal from this podcast, is to actually get up and leave the room and let the two of them talk. because then you just provide a real safe environment for that candidate to really ask questions that maybe they're even afraid to ask in front of you to get some perspective on what the team dynamic, current team dynamic really is. Yeah. So Fish, so you set it up where you're in the room and then you leave the room and just allow the candidate to have a discussion with one or a couple of your employees. Is that right? Yeah, right. I've done that in the past and I like that because you know, it's a good opportunity, one, for the person that works on your team to ask questions, because maybe that person has some questions about the candidate, but also the other way around. You know, the topic of the podcast is the good, the bad, and the ugly, right? So your hope is when you walk out of the door for five minutes, 10 minutes, that they get the good, the bad, and the ugly about me as a manager or as a leader of the team. And so it provides a good opportunity. And I've heard as I've done that over the years, I've gotten some good feedback. And then quite honestly, I've gotten people that have decided to join my team based on that opportunity to talk in candor with their future peers. Yeah, well, I think that speaks to just, you know, that humility and the courage to do that. And of course, that's an attractive traits when you're trying to recruit people to come work for you. Paul, I think you wanted to jump in there. I just want to ask Fish a question about that. I would guess that, you know, Glenn says, try to be as comfortable as possible and get them as comfortable as possible. Then you leave the room. That could break down barriers to the point where the candidate might say something to the rep that they wouldn't say to you. And uh, and it might hurt the candidate. You know, they might feel so comfortable that they say, well, yeah, well, yeah, you can't actually sell this drug because or this thing because of uh, this or that. Has that ever happened? The current person on the team says something that would make the candidate walk away. No, I mean, uh, the candidate saying something they didn't expect to say in an interview. 
doesn't <laughs> actually hurt them. It hasn't happened, but you know what? There runs that potential and it's something to look out for. I think that's good insight, Paul. I will share that I've used similar techniques to fish over the years. I don't think I've ever hired anybody without having one or a couple of my employees involved in your interview process. Part of that too is, you know, I might be developing somebody towards becoming a manager and that's for their development. But I will say, Paul, that I have had a couple scenarios where the candidates did drop their guard down and some feedback brought back to me by my employees who were involved in that, where we actually then passed on that candidate because of that. So to your point, Paul, that could happen. And that's part of the at least that was my strategy to try to get their guard down so you could really understand who they are. Right. Yeah. I, so making them comfortable, getting their guard down can actually be a good thing. They might just, they might not, you know, do that, but they might also let you know that, well, maybe they're not the right person for the job. Hey Rob, there's another component that you brought up to it that I was going to mention. And that is the opportunity for the teammate that you bring in. When you think about it, it's not my team. It's our team, and I think by involving some of your colleagues, really facilitate that opportunity. It might be a development opportunity for some people or maybe going down that management track, but it's no doubt an opportunity for you to emphasize that this is our team and that your input really matters. I think it does, that component alone does a lot of good for building up the team concept approach that I believe in. I think that's an excellent point because you're trying to get the team buy-in too. So what better way to do that than have some of them involved in the interview process? No doubt. All right. And speaking of, I mean, let's be honest, there are professional interviewers out there. And I had a, a VP once always talk about how it's rare that you get to see the gift of crazy come out in an interview, right? And so part of our approach is to figure out who the person really is under all of their interview techniques that they're throwing at us. And so this is a good way, one technique anyway, to try to uncover who the person truly is sitting in front of you. But talking about the gift of crazy, let's kind of shift into some of the bad and ugly. And perhaps maybe you guys can share the biggest mistake you ever made in hiring somebody. I mean, for me, when I was a new leader, I came out of the gate hot, meaning that my first hire was my first fire. So it was an epic fail when I went to do my first hiring. Who'd like to share? Hey, Rob, maybe I'll tackle that one first, being the newbie. So I had a very similar story. It's around settling. So sometimes you're going through the interview process and you might be feeling pressure or deadlines from the company and yet end up settling. And it's just absolutely the worst thing you can do. When you end up selling for somebody, the amount of resources that you personally end up focusing on that person can become very lopsided. And what it ends up doing, or I found myself investing so much time in one person, it was really pulling away from the time and investment that I could make in the rest of the team. And it just wasn't fair. And when you think about these decisions, I I'd be interested in the panel feedback, but God, I look at these decisions, these hiring decisions as the most important decisions that I now make during the course of a year. And so why the heck would you ever settle on a decision that you think is maybe the most important decision you'd make that year? That's a great point. Yeah, Glenn, I've been in a situation like that where I can recall a number of years ago where there was an opportunity to bring somebody in and the gut told me no. But it got to a point where you felt like this might just be 
the best candidate we're going to be able to put in place. And the gut won on this one. And I said, nope, I'm just not going to do it. I'm just going to wait. And you know what? I found a terrific candidate within two or three months after saying no to the first one. Your point's well taken. Settling can be a real challenge. But I guess my biggest, probably one of my biggest mistakes early on when I was a hiring manager was not doing enough homework or research on the particular candidate that I was going to hire. Even though the opportunity was there, I was so enthralled in the interview process and so taken back by the what I thought to be such high quality that I didn't take the opportunity to do the research on that particular person. And uh, it just, I look back on it and I think if I only called one or two more of those references, that would have been a great opportunity because once that person was no longer part of the company, I called that reference and they said, well, why did you not call me? (laughs) Because I could have given you the heads up. And I think to myself, oh, probably my biggest mistake and something I'll always do if there's something on the borderline there. I definitely take an opportunity to call a reference and have a quick conversation. And even if that person says to me, Rob, that it's just not an absolute glowing review on the reference, then I question it. If it's just, yeah, that person worked for me and that's all I got, then it speaks volumes. So that is interesting because I never, I mean, in, in the hundreds of interviews I've been involved with or candidates, I've never once called the reference because in my mind, you know, time is precious for all of us, right? And in my mind, I'm like, I'm not going to waste my time calling a reference when who would be dumb enough to put down a reference that's going to give them a mediocre or bad review. But apparently, from what you're saying, there's some pretty dumb people out there. Yeah, it's not as much as I can't imagine somebody's going to say, don't hire them. But if they're not saying or doing backflips for that particular person, then that raises the red flag, right? So... All you need is one person to say, absolutely, and here's why, and then you've got confirmation. That's interesting. But to your point, Fish, I'm thinking, you know, it's not only the references that you call, you find out who they're connected to on LinkedIn and try to figure out who their connections are, maybe even talk to some of those people, talk to other people they know, look on social media, ask your own team if they know this person, what their reputation is out there in the field. So there's a lot of ways to go get that information beyond just the references, but Uh, Rob, I have been around, as you know, a while and have hired a few people and admittedly made a mistake or two. One of them was relying solely on the recommendation of uh, someone I trusted Mm -hmm. and then gave sort of a superfluous interview or a light interview to this person because I was basically just going to hire him based on the recommendation alone. And of course, the person didn't work out. They didn't work well with others. They weren't coachable, really didn't fit the team, didn't have the culture fit. And bottom line, it was just the same thing Fish is talking about is relying solely on, on the recommendation of someone. But the biggest mistake that I almost made was really be really finding this guy who was an incredible high performer. And really, you know, I liked the guy personally. I thought he was a good fit for the team. But there was still something in my gut at the end of the face-to-face interview that I could not land on about this guy, this super high performer guy. So at the recommendation of my manager, he said, sit down with this guy again and try to get to what it is. And after the end of that second interview, that face-to-face with this guy, I figured out that he basically is the kind of guy who succeeds at all costs, succeeds without anybody else, has no humility, and leaves awake everywhere he goes. And so that was a great tool that I learned from my boss, is to just follow up with that second face-to-face if you're not fully clear at the end of the first interview. 
Right. So if you're not fully clear, invest a time and bring them back in. Yeah, completely agree. I was going to say you have to let reason triumph over enthusiasm. Mm, well said. So I have a question for you guys. Based on everything that you've learned being in this type of role for a while, at this point, would you hire somebody that you haven't been able to vet out with a previous manager or at least a you know one of your personal connections to a previous manager? So again, kind of get that managerial perspective on a candidate. Glenn, I have hired with people where I haven't been able to either know the previous hiring manager or even previous hiring managers in the distant past. And if that's the decision I'm going to make, I do, and I'm not convinced yet that this is the perfect candidate or the right candidate, then I'll look for performance reviews and evaluations that came from that particular manager. So in a way, if I don't know the manager, I still want to know what that particular manager or previous managers have said about that person in the past. Okay. Yeah. I'll lean on on their ability. I mean, what I'm looking for always in an interview, whether I have those references or not, is can they articulate a point effectively? Would I want to buy from this person? Do they have the confidence to show humility with either a success story or a failure? I mean, did they prepare themselves for this interview? Can they adapt it? You know, all this stuff, I'm going to take a lot of value in uh, the questions that I'm asking and the answers they're giving me in that. There's only a limited amount of information you can get. But I'll tell you what I don't really like is a brag book. Uh, a lot of people want to put together a big brag book. And I have one that's about two and a half inches thick here from an interview I did recently. And a brag book to me is you know, boy, you can print anything on paper. And as an example, I'm looking at a million dollar bill I printed on my computer over here. You just got to know the story behind it. I just don't really believe in the brag book and my million dollar bill. If you guys want it, you can, I can print you one too. (laughs) I agree with you, Paul. I'm not a big brag book person either. And the reason why I was asking you guys that question was to figure out ways to guard against the professional interviewer. And I think interviewing is a skill just like any other skill we may see people bring to the table. And so how do you guard yourself against that person who's just a professional interviewer? Here's the thing that, guys, I think that what Paul mentioned previously about taking the time I think if you limit yourself to an hour's visit and that's the you're making a big decision, like you said, Glenn, over an hour's visit, you're not doing yourself or your team any favors. I try to block off at least two hours, and if it goes for an hour, that's okay. If it goes for two hours, maybe even better, because then you're really learning about who that person is, not just what they've accomplished and how they've accomplished it throughout their career, but also who they are. And it's almost giving more time to every candidate it works better for me, especially as big a decision is. And on your brag book, on the conversation about brag books, guys, I'm okay with a brag book. If somebody feels like that they haven't done a good enough job to sell themselves and they pull out the brag book to do it, then you know you may not want to hire that person if they have to show you all these types of things in their hour <laughs> interview. So, I look at it from a point of view of did they put the effort in to put one together? I rarely ever look at it. For me, it's more of a how bad did they want the job? Did they go the extra step just to put one together? Again, it's kind of like one more data point for me anyway. Yeah, because being prepared for an interview is an extremely important aspect in how I'm deciding. I love it when in the first five minutes, you can tell that someone came 
extremely prepared for this hour visit, learning about me, learning about my team, learning about, Mm -hmm. you know, the company and the products. And to your point, having a brag book that just sits there, maybe not getting used, but at least it's sitting there. Not a bad thing. It shows that someone put a lot of effort into this one hour visit. Right. Fish, that's right. Did did they call members of your team or other people in your company to to learn as much as they can to prep? I totally agree with that. That shows a lot of uh, mental brilliance to do that. I think we're all on the same page there. It does show a level of preparedness. I guess what I was just thinking about was just that hour and a half interview. And a lot of times it's I don't want to take the time for, to go through the Brad book with them because I think it just becomes a conversation around what they did. And I'd rather spend more time around the, the why and how. Yeah. And Paul, you made a reference a good point too, about other people in the organization, you know, Glenn, to your point, I mean, it's a great question hiring somebody without any real lack of reference or anybody you can go to. That's where I, I may bring in others to help in the interview process, another manager or a couple other managers, just to get some different eyes, different perspectives to help with that. I think Fish brought up a really good point, too, about trusting your gut. You could probably do a whole podcast on that. When you think about maybe the muscle that you use most as a manager and a leader, it might even be your gut. And I just remember, he's not around anymore, but I had a mentor for a long, long time. And that was one of the things he told me early on is your gut never has to deal with consequences. And so it's just, a, <laughs> and, and so that's why you need to lean on it. And so again, like thinking of my mistake there about settling, I should have listened to my gut more in that one, because my gut's not listening to uh, the pressures of the company around trying to fill this position. It's just purely assessing the data points and what I'm getting out of the interview. So Fish could call about how to really trust your gut in these situations. Did you say your gut has no consequence or constipation? I couldn't tell. Which one? I'm just kidding. (laughs) All right, we're almost out of time. So one more question for you guys. Most managers have their favorite go-to or or one of their favorite interview questions that they like to ask. So the question is, do you have one that you can share with our listeners? Paul, why don't we start with you? Well, I've got two. The first one is related more to my own weakness as a leader, and that is my inability, or not inability, but I'm not great at managing through conflict. That's something that I'm working on. And so that's a question that I want to ask is really to understand how they're able to deal with conflict. So if they're able to deal with conflict and solve issues, it makes my job a whole lot easier. So I'll ask a question like that. The other one is I'm always interested if they're curious like I am. So I ask them about the last book they read, the last podcast. Maybe they listen to a leadership podcast. I don't know. Last article they read and just really get a sense of, you know, how they took that information, A, if they did it, and B, how they took the information and applied it in their current role. Because that's something that a lot of people who are in, like to self-develop, will do. I mean, that's what I want to see in my candidates. That's great. And I do want to highlight, again, for my listeners out there, particularly my listeners who might be new to managing, how Paul referenced, even after 12 years of managing, what he's still working on. And a good reminder that leading people is a lifelong journey of learning. So, Paul, thanks for your humility and sharing with that as well. Fish, how about you? Any one unique question that you like to ask? 
So along the same lines as humility, my question that I have is one that sort of catches some people off guard sometimes because it shows a little bit of humility, but it also shows if they've done their homework on the company and on the job and what the requirements of the job are, but also with who I am. I ask a question. I tell them they're not the perfect candidate. I also say when I got this job, I wasn't the perfect candidate. I tell them, you don't have everything that I'm looking for, just like I didn't have everything that my hiring manager was looking for. And so I asked them, why aren't you the perfect candidate? What is it that you don't have that you think that I need? And then I say, and when you think about that, tell me why that that's not going to be a problem and how you'll overcome that. And so what it sort of shows me is that they've done their homework. They understand that there is one thing that they probably don't have, and they may get a question in this interview process about that one thing. And they understand that that's not going to be an issue, and here's why. And I like that because it does show some level of humility in these people going forward. So that's a fun question I have. That's a great question. Glenn, how about you? So I've got two I'll hit, share with you real quick. The first one is kind of similar to both Fish and Paul as well, where I'll ask them, tell me about a time where you made a substantial investment in something which ultimately led to some sort of disappointment or failure. And then I'll ask them some questions around, how did you deal with the situation? What was your action plan? And I guess what I'm trying to get at there is, one, are they okay with failure? And two, again, when the chips are down, I would ask follow-up questions to try to understand what type of person am I going to be dealing with in a real difficult situation? The other question that I ask folks is so tell me about your personal development plan and how you're owning it and i think that question just gets to how serious they are about their development you know depending on what type of detail you go into you might get some insights into you know their level of self-awareness and how they're leveraging that to be better at their job and kind of prepare them for maybe some sort of advancement so those would be the two questions that I always ask. That's great. Well, I appreciate all you guys for sharing your one or two unique questions. And I have no doubt that many of our listeners will start using them. And unfortunately, you're going to now have to find some alternative questions for any potential candidates who might be listening and who you might be interviewing soon. So I apologize <laughs> for that. <laughs> or just be really well prepared for when I ask that question, just be really well prepared for it. <laughs> <laughs> At least pick up a book, read the cliff notes, something. Exactly. Hey, Rob, can I make one comment about what Glenn said about his, that last question to help uncover self-awareness? Self-awareness is probably one of the most difficult things or lack of self-awareness, difficult things to coach to and around or through. So if someone lacks self-awareness, it is probably the most problematic thing you'll experience as a leader. And if there's a good question that helps you uncover their level of self-awareness, like Glenn proposed, man, ask it because that'll help you a ton. I think you're spot on, Paul. I mean, let's be honest, you know, managing to behavior is probably the difficult, one of the difficult tasks we have as managers and which is the root of self-awareness. So trying to uncover that in an interview process is critical. And we talked about hiring top talent, but at the end of the day, it's really about hiring the right talent as well. And a lot of the things you guys discussed, approaches and techniques, really help to get to that point. So unfortunately, we're out of time. 
But on behalf of my listeners, I want to thank you guys for coming in and jamming with me. And I have no doubt many of my listeners are going to walk away with some real valuable tips that they're going to be able to apply immediately when hiring candidates. So once again, thank you for coming on and jamming with me. Thanks, Rob. Thanks, Rob. It was a blast. Yeah, Rob, this was great. Thank you. Thanks so much for listening in today. If you're enjoying the podcast, then click the subscribe button, leave a review, and I'll talk to you soon on the next episode of the Leadership Jam Session Podcast.